Um, the Lord is good to us, and um, this morning the Lord was speaking to my heart and mind, and I was just so happy to talk to my wife on the phone. You know, it's very hard to be away from a nice family. And, uh, you know, my baby, she's doing good, and I'm just giving you an update. Just I know you didn't ask me, but I'm giving you an update anyway. And it's just nice to know that God is taking care of home while I'm out doing his business. Uh, we're going to be studying again this evening, and hopefully you've brought pen and paper. And I beg of you not to believe anything I say, because you can't trust a man. Amen? And you have to go back, and you have to study, and you have to make sure if everything comes into line. Before we get started with tonight's subject, we need to review last night. I'm a teacher back in Massachusetts. I teach at a missionary training school and I review every class. So just to make sure, we're going to have a quiz. I know, I know everybody went back and had an opportunity to dig deep. So quiz, here's the quiz. What are we supposed to sow? Seed. And what is seed? The word of God. That's simple, amen? Uh, now, where are we supposed to sow? All the waters. And what is waters in Bible prophecy? People. So we are to sow seed. We're supposed to sow the word beside all the people. And we found out last night that there is a great crisis that is on its way to this planet. Yea, it is knocking at the door at this very moment. And God needs his people to sow as much seed as possible because he is soon to pour out the rain. And when he pours out this rain, beloved, there's going to be a great harvest. Now, I'm going to study with you in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 24. Are you ready? I'm going to share with you a study that I have gone over and looked and begged and asked God to give me greater clarity. Because I need to understand what this book is talking about. So Matthew 24, and we're going to begin at verse number 1. Matthew 24, beginning at verse number 1. And I promise you, beloved, you have not heard a study like this before. So please, get ready to buckle your seatbelts. You have not looked at Matthew 24 the way we're about to look at it right now. So here we go. Verse 1, and Jesus went out. And departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Again, his disciples, if you weren't at church this morning, you missed a little bit. But his disciples are looking at the blessings of God. And they're saying, oh, do you see the great buildings that we have that represent the institution?" Do you see how magnificent they are? If you read the pen of inspiration, she said that when he would stand on the Mount of Olives, you would stand on the Mount of Olives, this mount, this, this temple would glisten in the sun. It would look like a snow-capped mountain, this beautiful temple. Oh, it was a beautiful temple, beloved. And the disciples are looking and saying, don't you see this temple? It is gorgeous. It is wonderful. And notice what the Bible says in verse number two. Jesus responds to their joy in this temple. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things, pointing at all the temple. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left. How many stones upon another? 
Not one. Not one stone would be left upon another. Now understand, beloved, what I'm telling you is they were proud of their institution. They were proud of their hospital. They were proud of their church organization. They were proud of how much money they had saved up over the time frame that they had. And Jesus is telling them there's not going to be left one stone upon another as you now know it. There's going to be a reorganization. I notice what the Bible says now going forward. Verse 3 says, and he said, and as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? It seems like many questions, doesn't it? It seems as if they're asking many questions at once, but Jesus doesn't give many answers. He gives one answer. He gives one answer to the many questions, and what they did not realize was that their many questions was really one question. And I want you to pay attention to this. You're going to see something interesting this evening. Notice what the Bible says. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man does what? So I'm going to put something here on the board. I'm going to write the word world. We're looking at the condition of the world. And the first thing that Jesus says is, watch out for deception. That's the very first thing Jesus says. In this world, watch out for someone deceiving you. And then he goes forward and he even identifies what kind of deception to look out for. And notice what it says in verse 5. For many shall come in what name? My name. In other words, they're going to come representing me. They're going to come claiming that they are of me and they are not really of me. And it says here, I am Christ. Saying I am Christ and shall deceive how much? So there's not going to be a few people that are deceived by this, but many are going to be deceived by someone or people claiming that they are Christ. Now, when I looked up the word Christ, Christ means anointing, the anointed one. So there are going to be people that are ministers of God, quote unquote, that claim that they are anointed of God, beloved, and they're going to deceive a lot of people. Many people are going to be deceived by these false prophets and false teachers. Now, that's just step one. Notice what else he says here. Verse six, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. What shall you hear of? So we're looking for a false anointing. And we're looking for wars and rumors of wars. Let me ask you a question, beloved. Is that happening right now? Oh, without question. There, there are wars and rumors of wars happening right now at this very present moment. Right now in other countries, Iraq and, uh, and, and other, in Africa and all over the place. And there's rumors of wars that we're going to go to war in Iran. Wars and Rumors of wars. And then it says, notice what it says here. See that ye be not what? How many people pay attention to that verse? There are going to be wars and rumors of wars, but don't even be worried about that, Jesus says. How many times have you turned on the television and some preacher is saying, oh, there's a war in Iraq. This must be Armageddon. Jesus says when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, 
Don't even be troubled by that. Notice what else it says. And notice, notice what it says here. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is what? So Jesus is talking about the end, and he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but don't even be troubled about these wars or rumors of wars, because the end is not even here yet. But wait, wait, wait. Let's go a little further. Notice what it says. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be what in the land? Famines and what else? And what else? Earthquakes in how many places? And all these are what? Did it say it's the end of sorrows? It is only the beginning of sorrows. It's not the end of the world. It's only the beginning of sorrows. I think of the tsunami that took place and killed nearly 300,000 people. And you're telling me that's only the beginning of sorrows? I'm thinking about the pestilences that are in the land that people are letting out on us. Or maybe they're born for real. I don't know. Swine's flu. Where did I come from? Never heard of swine's flu in my life. But now this pestilence is in the land. But this is not the end. Oh, wait a second. I thought you were an end-time preacher, Brother Andre. We have to learn to use Scripture the way Scripture uses itself. Jesus said this is not the end. This is only the beginning. Now We need to watch this because when we begin to lay this out, wars, famines, Pestilence. And all these things are taking place, correct? Beginning of sorrows. Beginning of sorrows. Now watch this, beloved. I'm going to make another section here. Because we're about to run into one of my favorite words. Watch this. This is one of my favorite words. Anybody remember what my two favorite words are in scripture? Until and then. Now watch this. Notice what it says here. Then, favorite word, then shall they deliver you up to be what? Afflicted, and you shall and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of how many nations? For my name's sake. So after the condition of the world is such that it's so chaotic and so out of control, it is after the point in which it's come to a point of extreme intensity, then, then what, then what are they going to do? They're going to hate you. Then they will hate you, persecute you, kill you. This is the world versus the church. That's, that section is real small. It is not until the condition of the world becomes so out of control. It's not until the condition of the world gets to a point where now they're saying, hey, it must be because these people are talking the way they're talking and living the way they're living. Now we're going to kill them. We're going to persecute them. But notice what else it says. Look, look a little further. Notice my next, the, my favorite word is about to come up again. And then shall many be what? Offended and shall do what? Betray one another and shall what? Hate one another and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive how much? Now think about this for a moment. See, many of you don't know me, so you can't betray me. 
right? But people that can betray you are your friends, family, people you go to church with. That's betrayal. Betrayal doesn't come from strangers on the street. See, right here is the condition of the world. Then the world changes its position towards the church, and then the church begins to fight amongst itself because it's saying, I'm not part of them. I I don't represent what they're representing. You don't have to persecute me for what they're talking about. I don't believe in present truth like that. Then, then they were turning each other and hate each other. And notice, it says here in verse number 10, and shall hate one another. Beloved, this is, this is a revelation of the reality that's going to take place within God's people. We are going to turn on one another. Because right now, it's okay to come to the center of evangelism here. Nobody's put a big red flag. If you go in there, you're going to jail. It's okay to go to church on Sabbath and, and fellowship and enjoy one another's company and, and all those wonderful things. But when it's not okay... What are you going to do? This section is called church versus church. This is the section where betrayal takes place. This is the section where hate takes place. False prophets amongst God's people. Arise. That's serious. Each point, step by step, leading to a situation where God's people are going to be tested and tried. Now, these are three phases, three unique phases. Now, we're going to make an application on three levels. How many levels did I say? There's going to be three levels that we make this application. Now notice, verse 11 tells us, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that does what until the end? Endures until the end. The same shall be what? The same shall be saved. And this gospel, I like that part. Now when I read, when you read the first um, 12 verses, did you read anything about the gospel? Are you sure? Because it says, in this gospel, it didn't say a gospel, it didn't say the gospel, it said this gospel. So we must have missed something somewhere. So let's look at verse 13 again. But many, but he that shall do what? Endure until the end, the same shall be what? Think about this, beloved. Think about this. The enduring until the end and being saved is the gospel. It's said this gospel. Now, we can add and we can go to other parts of the Bible and say, well, this is what the gospel means. But look, right here, the endurance is the embodiment of the gospel. Oh, you didn't get it. You see, to live through the crisis where people are betraying you and turning you in and lying on you and you still responding as a child of God takes supernatural power. 
It takes a divine influence to be in the midst of somebody spitting in your face and taking your children and kicking them while you're looking at them and not getting up and getting a crowbar and smashing their head in. He that endures until the end, this is the manifestation of the gospel in reality. This is where God's people demonstrate the power of God. Notice what the Bible says in James chapter 1. James. James chapter 1. Make sure you keep your finger in Matthew. James chapter 1. And beginning... Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it, how much joy? Do you count it all joy? When ye fall into what kind of temptations? Diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith does what? Worketh patience. Patience and endurance are the same. That the trying of your, let, but let the, let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be what? Perfect and entire wanting what? So the endurance and the patience that is necessary is going to refine our characters for perfection. Did you hear me? How many of you need patience when everything's going all right? Everything's going good, you know? You're driving down the street. You can turn right when you want to, turn left when you want to. Go in the house. The food's cooked already. Everything's going well. Wife's treating you real nice. Husband's treating you good. Children are obeying everything you say. You don't need patience then. You need patience when things are not going right. You need patience when things are going really wrong. You need patience if you are exercising and you're running and you're running and you're enduring because it's painful. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Patience is required when pain is applied. And this gospel, he that endures until the end, the same shall be. Revelation chapter 14. Go there with me. Revelation chapter 14. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. Revelation chapter 14, and we're beginning at verse number 12. And notice what the Bible says. It says, here is the what? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Do you know that when you read this passage, verse, first, verses 9 through 11 or 12 there, the prophetess tells us that this angel, this third angel, is righteousness by faith in verity. And I looked up, what does that verity mean? What does is, what is verity uh, uh, encompass? Verity means in truth, in realness, in substance. You see, we have an intellectual assent to Jesus died on the cross. He forgave me for my sins. But do we really believe that we place our hands on the Lamb of God and the sins that we had are now transferred to that Lamb and that Lamb now has died for our sins and has been transferred to the heavenly sanctuary? Do we really believe that? 
Do you believe that sin has been taken from you and is now somewhere else and not with you? Because when you leave here, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tried. Somebody's going to step on your toes. The gospel in realness, in verity, you will be living this thing. Not a mere profession of faith, friends. Not a mere profession of faith, friends. It is in realness. Go a little further with me now. Let's go back to this concept. The world, the church. Let's go back here real quickly. This application off top deals specifically with the destruction of Jerusalem. The distress of nations leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. All these things were taking place in the land. The Roman soldiers came in A.D. 66 and surrounded Jerusalem. They call that the abomination of desolation. Then Titus returns, excuse me, then Titus returns, and when he returned in A.D. 70, he surrounded Jerusalem, destroyed the city. The Jews ran into the temple. You read this in the first chapter of Great Controversy. They ran into the temple, and they're hiding inside the temple. Someone throws something, a fiery diet or something, out of the temple, and the Roman soldiers get angry. They take a firebrand, put it in the doorpost, the whole building lights on fire. They see the gold, the gold melts in between the rocks, and the spirit of prophecy tells us that they took little wedges and they broke the rocks open, tried to take the gold, so not one stone was left upon another. We're also told that if any stone was left, an angel from heaven came down to make sure that not one stone was left. This is what happened with the first siege. Do you know what happened in Jerusalem during the siege? The Deuteronomy 28 was fulfilled to the letter. They ate their children, friends. They ate their children. Can you imagine eating your own children? You had no food. You're starving to death. So your mom says, hey, you guys look good today to eat. Could you imagine that? What could have happened to God's remnant people for them to come to that point? That they ate their children. They turned on one another. They betrayed one another. And false prophets started to walk up and down in Jerusalem and say, God is going to deliver Jerusalem. God is going to deliver Jerusalem. That's what they said. And they died in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice something. See if I can get there fast. It's going slow for me right now. After they destroyed Jerusalem, do you know what happened to the gospel? It spread. Because the Christians no longer congregated in one place. Oh, you didn't hear that. You know, we like to hang out together, beloved. You ever, you ever had some salty food? A clump of salt just in one spot? Do you like that food? That's food got to spread out, Amen. And Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. And if you're the salt of the earth, what are we all clumping together all the time for? We build an institution and we all live around Oakwood. We build an institution and we all live in Andrews. We all live at AUC. When the whole world needs to hear the gospel, we're all clumped in these little places. God says, no, I'm not going to have that. I'm going to spread you out. So you have two choices. Either you can spread out on your own or he's going to spread you. Which one is it going to be? This was Jerusalem. I want you to think about Christ. The spirit of prophecy tells us that when Christ came on the scene, 
the condition of the world was such that humanity was possessed with demons. That the very way that they looked, looked like demons. When, that, when, the, time, when the time was fully come, Desire of Ages, the first chapter, describes that humanity was in complete and utter darkness when Jesus came on the scene. The condition of the world was similar to how we described it here. Famines, pestilence, wars. Jesus came on the scene during this time. And when he came on the scene, did they accept my Lord? No. They would not accept our Lord. Here we go. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This parallel is going to be applied to the life of our Lord perfectly. Jesus, the Jewish leaders, attempt to kill and take our Lord captive. So they send Roman armies. What did they send? Roman soldiers. They sent Roman soldiers to surround and take him captive. Did they, did, did they take him captive? Sure they did. And who came together to, to, to take Jesus captive? Who were the two leaders that did that? Herod. He was a church man. And Pilate. He was a, he was a state man. Church and state came and took Jesus captive. The world came against our Lord by the union of church and state. Remember, the Roman army came and surrounded Jesus and took him captive, and church and state committed him to death. You know what happened to his disciples? Judas, what did Judas do to our Lord? He betrayed him. And what did Peter do to our Lord? He denied him. Same thing that happened in Jerusalem. And here, we could put this here, we'll just call this the shaking. How about that? Is that all right? God's faithful people denied him. God's faithful people betrayed him. This is a pattern. Notice what else happens here. After Peter and Judas deny him, our Lord dies, and he raises from the dead. When he raises from the dead, what happens to the disciples? What takes place? They're all hiding out, right? And while they're hiding out, they go into an upper room. And when they're in this upper room, what do they do? They pray. They got together. They were, they were there, and then Jesus shows up, right? And when Jesus shows up, and then he tells them, wait and he stays with them for 40 days, and on the 50th day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, and then the gospel goes to the, to the world. Remember the first phase. The, the temple is destroyed in AD 70, and the Jews go and give the gospel, the Christians go and give the gospel to the world. The disciples betray their Lord, but after that betrayal, Jesus raises from the dead. When he raises from the dead... On the 50th day, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the gospel goes to the entire world. Are you following, beloved? Is it making sense? 
Let's have another word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just beg of you to give us more of your spirit. Help me to make this clear, Lord. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each one of these phases we are going through at this very moment. But we have yet to really move out of this phase right here. World conditions. The world does not hate you, my friends. You have not let you live the life that is righteous and holy so that the world can say, I don't like those Christian Seventh-day Adventists. They don't hate you like that. There's no, pre- there's no straight, straight Christian living life where the Holy Ghost is just coming down so hard that they have to make a law to shut you up. It doesn't, we don't, we don't exist this way right now. So we're in the first phase still. We're in phase number one, where the conditions of the world are getting worse and worse and worse. And soon, beloved, soon we're going to wake up and say, hey, Lord, I do love you. Please give me your spirit so that I can give this testimony as it should be given. And when we begin to give the testimony as it is given, then they will hate us. And as they begin to hate us, beloved, amongst us will become betrayers. Amongst us, we will have Judases. Amongst us, we will have Peters. Amongst us, this will take place. But let me assure you, my friends, this shaking or this, this tumultuous time that takes place is all in God's good time. Because as we talked about this morning, the cream comes to the top. When this shaking takes place amongst God's people, there are no more fakers in the midst. Let me read something to you. The mighty shaking has commenced and will go on. And all will be shaken out who are not willing to take a bold, unyielding stand for truth. And to sacrifice. And to what? And to sacrifice for God and his cause. All will be shaken who are not willing to do this. Then it says... The angel said, think ye that any will be compelled to sacrifice? You know, when I do song service, I don't ask anybody to sing louder. Because if you can't sing loud by yourself, me telling you to sing loud is not going to make you praise Jesus. If you want to sing loud, you're going to sing loud. You're going to sing with all your heart, mind, and soul because you love Jesus with all your heart, mind, and soul. If you're going to spend money on God's work, you shouldn't have to have a begging service. Please, we need $100,000 or $50. Please give us $20 to do God's work. No, God does not accept that donation. God says, I'm only going to take that which you willingly give with your whole heart. And if you don't want to give it with your whole heart, get out the way. Then it says, notice what it says. Think ye that any will be compelled to sacrifice? No, no. It must be a free will offering. It will take all. How much will it take? It will take all to buy the field. I cried to God to spare his people, some of whom were fainting and dying. Then I saw that the judgments of the Almighty were speedily coming. How were they coming? 
And I begged of the angel to speak in his language to the people. And notice what he says. He said, all the thunders and lightnings of Mount Sinai would not move those who will not be moved by the plain truths of the word of God. Neither would an angel's message awake them. Are you telling me if Gabriel himself in all his glory came down and began to preach the message, people would still be like, ah, I don't think it's time. We still got things to do. Still got some money to make. Still got to get a good education. They've been saying Jesus is coming for a long time. Why don't I start stressing about this stuff right now for you? He's still here. Gabriel came down to preach, we wouldn't even listen to the man. Because if the word of God doesn't convict us, what will? Notice what else it says. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen, and I was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony, called forth by the counsel of the true witness to what? The Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight testimony. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this will cause a shaking amongst God's people. What is the counsel to the witness of Laodicea? What's the problem? They are rich, increased in goods, and in need of nothing. But they don't know that they're wretched. How do you not know if they're wretched? They don't know if they're miserable. They don't even know if they're blind. They don't even know they're naked. How do you not know if you're blind or naked? If I stood up here naked, I think I'll know. But the Bible says that the condition of Laodicea is so bad, they don't even recognize that they are naked. We're coming to a point here, beloved. Well, the world will begin to hate us because we have decided that there is nothing in this world more important than God and his message. There is nothing more important than sacrificing all for the master. Nothing. I'm looking at the revival of God's people, friends. Primitive godliness. Does anybody know what primitive godliness is? What is what the word primitive? What do you think of when you think primitive? I thought I just thought word primitive, and I thought of a cave. Uh, prim, when you say primitive godliness, what is primitive godliness? That means they had all things in common. That means they knew their Bibles, they walked with their Bibles, they spent time in their Bibles, and they were willing to give an answer for the reason of the hope that was in them, and they gave it with meekness and fear. Do you know what they talked about most of the time? They talked about Jesus. They didn't talk about their jobs most of the time. They talked about Jesus because he is the most important, the most precious thing in the entire world. He is the creator God, the one that spoke and things came into existence. They spoke about Jesus and the world doesn't want to know Jesus, friends. Do you want to know him? Let me take you back to the first gospel call. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 3, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to take you back to the first gospel call. We're going to tie it to God's last gospel call, and I want you to pay notes, take notice of what happens here. 
that now the serpent was more subtle than all the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the tree, tree of every tree in the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not touch, ye shall not eat it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God knoweth, because God does know in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as what? You shall be as gods, knowing what? Good and evil. He told the truth. This was a true lie. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and then eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed what together? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So the condition of the people, they understood their condition, but they tried to solve their own condition by their own works of their own hands. Notice what else it says. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife did what? Now, this was a very different mindset. Something has changed completely in their relationship with God. They normally, when God approaches, spend quality time with them. But now when God approaches, they are finding bushes to hide behind. Even though they already had sold fig leaves together. But when the trueness of God shows up, they are looking for a place to hide. Listen carefully now. And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? Why did God call him? Did God not know where he was? But God asked the question so that he could recognize his own condition. God asked the question, where are you, Adam? Not so that he could find him. He knew where he was. He asked the question so Adam could say, yeah, why am I running? What am I doing? God is giving a gospel call and Adam is running in a completely opposite direction. Do you know why? Because when sin comes into the presence of righteousness, it doesn't like to be there. Notice what else it says here, friends. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. I thought, I thought he put fig leaves on. But because he's standing in the presence of God, he realizes no matter what he did, he's still naked. And notice what else it says here, friends. And he said, who told thee that thou was naked? Has thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Sin causes us to do this, friends. Blame. And we do this on several fronts. We blame the church. We blame the organization. We blame our husbands. We blame our wives. We blame our children, but we don't blame self. We get so audacious with it, we blame God for creating the woman. 
blank. Sin is so messed. Do you know how bad sin is? It's messed up to be in sin. I was counseling with a man. He came to my house. I was telling my brother about this the other day. He came to my house and he was just at my house. He knows everything about what we talk about right now. But he met this woman. And I said, brother, you don't need to be talking to that woman. She doesn't believe the same things you believe. Oh, no, man, she, she believes in the Bible. No, man, she doesn't believe the same things you believe. My man's soul got caught up. He ended up out there, if you understand what I'm saying. Sin does something to your mind where that which you used to love, you don't love anymore. That which you used to call righteous, you don't call it righteous anymore. You don't like it anymore. You can't do both at the same time. You can't do sin and righteousness simultaneously. When I was little, I used to love ice cream. Anybody here like ice cream? Don't raise your hand. You'd be guilty. <laughs> but I used to love ice cream to death. I mean, you give me some ice cream, I'll, I'll max it in a minute. But then you give me an apple right after I eat ice cream, I, I wouldn't like the apple. But which one's better for me? The apple. An apple actually tastes good when you don't have ice cream. Right? But when you do sin and then you try to do righteousness at the same time, you're not going to like that. And the Bible calls that lukewarm. The Bible says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. We got to be completely, totally sold out for righteousness. But here, he's playing with it. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. Notice what it says in Isaiah 53. Remember now, Adam hides from the presence of God. He doesn't like what he sees. He doesn't like the revelation of what he is now because he is now naked. So he's hiding. And notice what it says in Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 1. Who have believed our report and to whom... Is the arm of the Lord revealed for he shall go up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form, no comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid. And we did what? And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him what? Why? Why would we hide our faces from the master? It'd be, it would be interesting if his face was ugly, if he was an angry man or, you know, his breast stank. But the Bible doesn't say any of those things. It simply says that he came and he was compassionate and he was loving and he was kind. And even though he was loving and kind, we hid. Go to Exodus chapter 33. Notice again the reaction of mankind coming into the presence of God. Exodus chapter 33. And Moses is now has come off the mountainside, or he's in the mountain. Notice what it says in verse 13, chapter 33 and verse 13. It says, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now the way that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, this is God said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give you what? Listen now. You want to know this. 
presence of God equals rest. You want to know that. The presence of God equals rest. Now notice what else it says. We're going to come back to that point. We're going to hammer it in before the night is over. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. In other words, Moses saying, if you don't go with me, I'm not going anywhere. How many of you say that in the morning before you go to work? Well, I don't, I'm not going to work today unless you're going with me. If you don't go with me, I'm staying in the house. Right? I mean, what's the point of going outside your job or outside your house, going into your car without the presence of God? What good is that? You won't have any rest. You're opening yourself up to a lot of craziness and you have no protection. No guidance. Notice, notice what else it says here. Moses is a smart man. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, and I and thy people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. So him going with them shows that they have been separated from the rest of the world. And him going with them is, is God's what? It's his presence, which gives them. Can I, let me write this other word here so you know exactly what we're trying to say. Sabbath. That word Sabbath means rest. God's presence, the presence of God equals rest. The presence of God equals Sabbath. But notice, and the Sabbath is, lets them know that he has been separated from the world. That rest is a sign. This Sabbath, the physical seventh-day Sabbath, is a spiritual sign of a state of being that you have all throughout the week. Oh, you missed it. It went, wait, it went. Been in church too long today. The Sabbath, the physical seventh-day Sabbath, is a sign of a spiritual condition that we have all throughout the week. Rest. The presence of God. Now remember, Adam is fleeing from his presence. Moses is in the presence of God saying, I'm not going anywhere unless you Sabbath with me, unless you rest with me. Notice, notice, keep reading now, keep reading. Notice what it says here. And he said, no, 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 verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing. Amen. I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by what? Wonderful. Does he know you by name? I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, talking about Moses said this, Show me thy what? And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and merciful, to whom I will, be, uh, I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me, and what? That's serious, man. 
but I'm going to show you my backside. And just by seeing his backside, do you know what happened to Moses? Go to chapter 34. Notice what happened in chapter 34. Beginning at verse, I wanted to start at verse 6, but I'm looking at verse 9, 29. Thank you. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tabernacles of testimony in Moses' hand. When he had come down from the Mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his, what? Face shone while he talked with him. With them. And when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were what? Did you get that? Notice what it says in verse 31. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and the, and the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh and gave, and he gave them in commandment. All that the Lord has spoken with him, where? In the Mount Sinai. Watch this. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his what? Hmm. So the people could not stand in Moses' presence because Moses' presence reflected the presence of God. So God veiled himself. Moses veiled his face so that he could commune with these human beings. Where did Moses come from? He came from the mountain. What did he come down with? He came with what? He came with glory, but what did he have in his hand? Watch, watch this, beloved. Watch, watch, watch. Watch carefully. Watch carefully. the sanctuary sorry where are the commandments in this sanctuary where is it at that's right it's in the most holy place in the ark of the covenant in the very throne of God you would say that this most holy place is where the direct presence of God was And Moses leaves the direct presence of God on Mount Sinai and comes down with something from the throne of God. You're not hearing this. He is communed with God so closely. He is so intimately connected with God that when he comes off the mountain, his face is giving glory. The Bible says, fear God and do what? Why? For the hour of his judgment is what? That means the holy place, the most holy place has now been opened and we can now enter into the most holy place experience. And when we leave the most holy place, what's supposed to be on our face? Glory, friends. The experience that we're supposed to have in these last moments of earth's history, our faces are supposed to be shining. We're supposed to be in the very presence of God. But who can, who can ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who can be in the most holy place? He that hath clean hands. 
and a pure heart. You cannot come off the mountain to give a message until you have first gone up into the mountain to be in his presence. And let me tell you something, to go into his presence, you are completely, you are utterly, I'll show you what you'll do. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. I don't have to say a word. Notice what Isaiah chapter 6 says about being in his presence. Moses will tell you that he took his shoes off his feet in God's presence. Wouldn't dare to walk on holy ground. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a what? A throne. Amen. We know what happens when somebody sits on a throne in the Bible. That means he's ruling. He's a king. High and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his feet, and with twain, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of what? Oh, that's, 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 that's prophetic, friends. Notice what else it says. And the post of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He has been in the direct presence of God. Now, I want you to pay attention to something. Turn back one chapter with me to Isaiah chapter 5. I want you to notice something that Isaiah has been doing prior to being in the presence of God. Notice what the Bible says, beginning at verse 11. It says, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that may follow strong drink. Notice what the Bible says in verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with the cords of vanity and sin with a rope. Verse 20. Woe unto them that call good evil evil good and good evil, and put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and wine and men of strength of to mingle strong drink. Notice what it says in chapter 6 again now. Woe is what? Me. Chapter 5, he's telling everybody else. He's telling everybody else. Everybody else, you got problems. Everybody else, you you have this problem. Everybody else, you're in apostasy. Everybody else, but then he comes himself into the presence of God, and he recognizes the greatest woe in the world is me. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. What does that mean, I'm a man of unclean lips? The Bible says the heart is deceitful. Out of the abundance of the heart, the Mouth speakers. He said, I'm a man, I'm an unclean hearted man. And I live in the midst of a people that are unclean as well. They're bad, but I'm bad too. It's no they're bad, I'm going to heaven by myself. Woe is me, for I am undone, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Where are your eyes fixed, friends? Because if your eyes stay there, you're going to come away knowing that you are nothing at all good in any way, shape, or form. 
And we don't like to know that. We don't want to know that we are no good. Do you understand that? But the point is, stay there anyway. Keep looking. Keep staring. Keep focused on the glory. And I tell you what, brothers and sisters, you'll stop worrying about you and you'll stop worrying about him. And without question, you will be changed into his likeness. And when you come off the mountain, you won't even know that your face is shining. Did, you, did, did Moses say, hey, my face is shining? I've been with God. Look at me. Look at me. I've been with God. He just came down to do what he was supposed to do, and that was to give a word from the Lord. Woe is me. But notice, 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 notice in Isaiah 6, continuing down there, continuing here. Verse 6 says, Then flew one of the seraphs unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongues of the altar. And this altar that it was spoken of is this altar right here, the altar of incense. The same coals that were on the altar of sacrifice were the same coals that were on the altar of incense. On the altar of sacrifice... Of course, the lamb was slain. The blood was there on this altar. And this same coals are on the altar of incense. And these live coals are taken from the altar of incense and they're placed on the lips, the most tender part of the human, one of the most tender parts of the human anatomy. On the lips. Why on the lips? Because he says, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean what? And if, it, if he puts the coals on the lips, that means it purifies the lips, which in, in reality is a purification of the heart. So the angel comes and he takes the live coals from off the altar. He places it on his lips, cleanses his heart. And notice what it says. Verse 7, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is Purge. Notice what also it says. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Did he go before he was cleansed? Well, he was preaching prior. And it's funny, God didn't come to him and say, Hey, Isaiah, do you want to go for me? It's almost as if God is saying, Anybody here? And Isaiah's a short little guy. Like me. Over here, I'll, I'll, I'll go. And you know why he's willing to go? Because God has done so much for him. He's willing to go because now God has done something so much for him, he's going to go and give a message. And notice, notice what the message he's going to give. He said, here am I, send me. And he said, go, verse 9, and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed and perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their ears, eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Notice the next question. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted. You're not hearing this. You preach until the cities be wasted without inhabitant. And the houses without man, and the land utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. And yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return. 
and shall be eaten as a teal tree, as a oak whose substance is in them. And when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. How long is he supposed to preach? Tell there's nobody else. Can you imagine? I, I want you to just imagine with me for a moment. Your task now as God's last day messenger is to go to a world and give a message. And every city you go to looks completely desolate. But you still got to knock on every door just to make sure there's not one person missing. Can you imagine dedication like that? Preach until there's nothing. The only way you can give a message like that is if you've been in his presence. The only way you can love like that is if you have been in love with him who loves like that. We know there's a crisis coming. We know there's a crisis coming. Do we have the love that is necessary to finish this work? I want to read something to you. A little book here. Seventh-day Adventists have been chosen by God as a peculiar people, separate from the world. How so? By the great cleaver of truth, he has cut them out from the quarry of the world and brought them into connection with himself. He has made them his representatives. And he has called them to be ambassadors for him in the last work of salvation. You guys are not hearing this. The greatest wealth of truth ever entrusted to mortals. The most solemn and fearful warnings ever sent by God to man have been committed to them. To be given to the world. Did you hear that? The most solemn message ever given to man has been given to Adventists. The last work of salvation. That's serious. And we want to be so much like the world. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. A sacred nearness. An intimacy that God is seeking to have with each one of us. And we want to be like the world. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we have. We need not be ashamed about any particular peculiar point we have. We need to stand up and be counted. 
I read that, my, I almost, I, I feel like crying right now. Because for so long, I grew up in our church. Not knowing what in the world, what's the di- Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, we go to church on Saturday. Well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because my mom and dad, we don't eat meat. And I go to church on Saturday. I can't watch Saturday cartoons. I don't know what the big difference is. Sunday, Saturday, it's just church. I didn't understand, friends. Do you understand? That we are here? I mean, I could put a timeline up and show you all the prophetic world events and all. That's not important. This is his presence. Do you know what it's like to be in his presence every morning? And to know that angels are worshiping with you. Do you know what it's like to commune with God, friends? Let me read one more thing to you. And we want to do missionary work here. Amen? Amen? This center is not just here so we can preach to each other and feel happy about it. We want to do missionary work. Notice what it says. God's messengers must tarry long with him if they would have success in their work. Notice what it says in Signs of the Times, January 29, 1902. We can no more live the Christian life without prayer than we can live the physical life without food. To grow in grace, we must ask and receive the bread of heaven. The strength gained by prayer gives a preparation for duty and fills the heart with peace. By prayer, man is braced for duty and prepared for trial. Morning and evening, our earnest prayer should ascend to God for his blessing and guidance. True prayer takes hold upon omnipotence. Upon what? What is omnipotence? That's all power. So when I pray, let me tell you something. When I pray, I'm taking hold of all power. True prayer takes hold of omnipotence and gains victory. Upon his knees, the Christian gains strength to resist temptation. And while engaged in our daily work, we should lift the soul to heaven in prayer. It was thus that Enoch walked with God. The silent, fervent prayer of the soul rises like holy incense to the throne of God in, and is as acceptable to God as if offered in the sanctuary. You didn't hear that? Do you know that this piece of furniture right here, the altar of incense, was really considered part of the most holy place? You see, the incense wafted up and went over the curtain into the most holy place. When you and I pray, we literally enter into the presence of God. Do you understand what that means? Angels, you get private audience if you want. You can say, Lord, I just want you to hear this. 
And you don't have to pray with your, with, without saying anything because everybody says, oh, if I pray out loud, Satan will hear me and then he might answer my prayer. Mm-hmm. Foolishness, foolishness, foolishness. When you pray, say, Lord, I would like a private audience. And he will give soundproof, audio connection with heaven. And you can cry out to him, and he will hear, and he will answer. He so desires for you to commune with him, it's not even funny. I love talking to my wife. When I get done here, I'm going to get on the phone, and I'm going to call and speak with my wife. We're going to commune with each other. Do you understand? And I don't care if anybody hears anyway. I'm going to talk to her because I love her. Why don't we pray more? Because we don't talk to God as if he's our love one. We talk to God as if he's our Santa Claus. Lord. We want souls here at this center. Please, you love the souls more than we do. Help us to reach the souls. Lord, I want to be a medical missionary. Lord, I want to be a literature evangelist, but I don't know how to start. Help. I know you know how to do everything. Will you teach me, Father? Do you know my Father in Heaven will come and teach you? I remember when I first started doing literature work, I had some very interesting leaders. Very interesting leaders. You know, they took me to the movies. You know, if we sold so many books, they took me to get ice cream. I mean, very strange leadership. I asked the Lord if he would teach me how to canvas. I remember going out one day as I asked him to teach me how to canvas. And the day before, I had only sold $18. What can you do with $18? A couple of things, but not much. And the next morning, I got up and I read Joshua chapter 1, where it says, Every place where the sole of your foot shall tread, it should be yours. So I claimed that. I said, Lord, wherever you send me, I'm going to claim this territory as your territory. Communing, just talking to God. And the Lord communed back to me. And he said, Andre, you're going to sell 14 books today. Now you have to understand, I'm not, I wasn't then used to hearing his voice. So I wasn't familiar with that. I figured it was my own thinking created in my own mind. So I went to my friend and I said, hey, you know what? I think God told me I'm going to sell 14 books today. And we just started laughing together like, yeah, you're crazy, man. You only sold three books total, you know, so far. I'm going to sell 14 books today. But I went out there and I worked hard because I wanted to do it. Knocked on the doors, met the people, and I, by lunchtime I only had one dollar. I said, well, Lord, you said this territory is your territory, so I'm just going to keep working. I'm just going to keep working. Now, forget, you know, the money. I'm just going to work for you. You're going to make the provision for me. So I remember coming to a house. I was about to knock the door, and the voice of the Lord said to me, slow your canvas down. Kind of like he told the disciples, cast your net on the other side. He said, slow your canvas down. So I slowed it down. The person bought two books. I was like, oh, praise the Lord. I went to the next house, the very next house, two more books. I was like, oh, praise the Lord. 
By this time, my leader said, oh, something's happening with Andre. Let me go work with him. So he comes over. He's working with me. Andre, why don't you pray for a four-book set? I said, all right, let's pray. So I prayed. Finished praying, walked to the house. Knocked the door. Lady came out, bought four books. So I said, what's happening? So I'm walking down the street, and I'm singing songs of Zion, and I'm I'm walking, knocking on doors, and I came to this next house, and I'm naturally shy, believe it or not. And I came to the next house, and there's a whole bunch of cars in the driveway lined up. And I said, I'm not going to disturb these people. They look like they're having a good time, and I don't want to disturb what's going on. And I'm about to walk by the house, and I said, skip a house, skip a blessing. Ah. (laughs) Turned around, knocked on the door. The man comes out. He says, what are you doing, young man? I said, well, my name is Andre, and I'm doing a special scholarship project, and I showed him a book. It was a piece above the storm. Normally we start with a cookbook, but I had a piece, and I gave it to him. He said, what else do you have? I said, oh. Then I gave him another book. He said, what else do you have? I gave him another book. He said, come inside. Now, mind you, there's a lot of people in the house. So I walk inside, and there's a group of people sitting around. They're having a big Bible study. It's about 14 people in there just having a Bible study. And he says, Andre, um, he says, Andre, this is everybody. Everybody, this is Andre. Now, I'm going to go buy some books for him, and then I'll come back. He said, oh, no, no, no. Wait a minute. Andre, why don't you tell everybody what you're doing? So I had all my books in my bag, and I started started handing out books to everybody. Put a book in everybody's hand. Just put it in their hand. And I started canvassing each one. Canvassing each person. Everybody got a book. 20 books in one house. One, one house. My little friend came. Now, this is God revealing himself to me, my friend, because I really didn't know him as I know him now. But then my little friend, my little friend, Stephen. You remember? You remember him? Maybe that wasn't the same time. Stephen, little Korean guy. He came in. And he's sitting there. He mouths to me. He goes like this. You're so lucky. <laughs> but in my heart, I knew I wasn't lucky. God had blessed me. God was showing himself faithful to me because he wanted me to know that he was with me. I didn't know anything about Call for the Ministry, the book then, not knowing that I had two angels walking with me from every house. Didn't know that when you saw a great controversy that there is an actual or spiritual warfare that you can't see when you present a great controversy to someone. And I remember one time vividly once I understood this concept and I was out the door and I showed this great controversy. And the person was like, ah, you know, I don't think that, that you know. And I said, Father, please send extra angels in my mind. I said it. And completely changed, the, the woman's face completely changed from, I don't want this to, so you said it's only 15? Here, I'll give you 35. Spiritual warfare, friends. I'm talking about frontline stuff. I'm talking about when you're out there, you're knocking on those doors, and you come to a house. And I remember doing it. I came to one house, and the lady came to the door and said, what are you doing here? And I'm like, It's this peace above the storm, and she said, oh, oh. She let me in, signed up her husband for Bible studies, signed her up for Bible studies, signed her son up for Bible studies. They bought six books for me. 
We're talking about the presence of God here. I remember going to another house. And I walked into the door. And the man was so nice, so nice. He was such a nice man. And he, he opens the door and he, he says, oh, I, I like these books. I like these books. He says, but let me go ask my wife. She turns around and goes inside to ask his wife. And I hear her from the back. We don't want any. I remember it, clear as day. And I said, nah, I'm going in. I never had done this before. The man came back with the books. He says, I'm sorry, my wife says she doesn't. I said, excuse me, sir, can I... I Where's your wife? And I grabbed the books out of his hand. I said, she's, she's this way. And I kind of just moved them a little bit. I'd never done it before. Something came over me. The Holy Ghost came on me. And I walked into the house, and I saw her sitting there. And I said, ma'am, I didn't get a proper chance to introduce myself. My name is Andre. I'm just doing some Christian ministry in the community. I just wanted to show you what I was doing. She backed up. She bought six books from me. When God's spirit comes on you, there's, there's something that happens, friends. There's something that takes place where he sends his spirit for the purpose of winning souls for no other reason. I remember being dropped off, working in Memphis, Tennessee, knocking on doors as a student in Oakwood. And the Holy Ghost was thick this day, man. I mean, he was so thick, I didn't even want to eat. I mean, books was for every single house I told them, Jesus is coming, get ready. Every house, I told them, Jesus is coming. You need to get ready. Jesus is coming. You need to get ready. And I, I, I was afraid to lose the spirit if I stopped to eat lunch. So I didn't eat. And my leader said, here, I'm going to drop you off on this street. So he dropped me off, and I got out, and on the corner was this huge group of gang members. Massive. And I said, I'm not starting there. I walked up the street, started working down the street. Got to a house, knocked on the door. The lady came out. Before I said anything, she said, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, aren't you? I said, well, yeah. She says, uh, I don't need your religion. And the Holy Ghost gave me an answer. I mean, he's the teacher, man. The Holy Ghost is the teacher. No matter what you've memorized, the Holy Ghost is the teacher. So as she said that, I said, you're right, ma'am. You don't need my religion. I said, you need Jesus. And she stopped, and she looked at me for a good 10 seconds. She began to cry. She said, you're an angel. She said, you're an angel. God sent you here. You're an angel. And I picked up the piece above the storm. I read a phrase of, of love from God to her, gave her the book. She said, you're an angel. Seventh-day Adventist, you're an angel. You're one of those three angels that are carrying the last message or warning to a dying world. Let me finish reading that quote to you that I was reading. Notice what it said about Seventh-day Adventists. Your angels, beloved. Seventh-day Adventists have been chosen by God as a peculiar people separate from the world. By the great cleaver of truth, he has cut them out from the quarry of the world. And brought them into connection with himself. He has made them his representatives and have called them to be his ambassadors for him in the last work of salvation. The greatest work, wealth of truth ever entrusted to mortals. The most solemn and fearful warnings ever sent by God to man have been committed to them to be given to the world. And in accomplishing of this work, our publishing houses are among the most effective agencies. 
our publishing houses, our, our literature work is of the most effective agencies. She says, in a large degree, our publishing work is that other angel that comes down from heaven in the Revelation chapter 18 and lightens the earth with his glory. The publishing work. Now, there's two works here. I'm going to write them on the board. And we need to pay attention to this, and then we're going to stop. You have the publishing work. And the medical. Missionary work. I want you to pay attention to the quotes I'm going to read to you. And you're going to understand why I'm reading it to you in a moment. Sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 478, says this. As long as probation continues. As long as what? As long as probation continues, there will be an opportunity for the canvasser to work. Did you get that? As long as probation continues. It didn't say it would be an opportunity for the minister to work or the doctor to work or the lawyer to work, or the accountant to work, or whatever job you have right now, you will not be working. In fact, I'm going to prove it to you in a moment here. Evangelism, page 523, paragraph 3 says this. I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines but medical missionary work. Now, this is my problem. When I read one statement, it says the council will always have work to do until the close of probation. But then this one says that soon there will be no work done in any line, ministerial line at all except for the medical missionary work. So something must have to take place. Watch this now. I wish to say that the medical missionary work is God's work. The Lord wants every one of his ministers to come into line. Take hold of the medical missionary work, and it will give you access to the people. So what's going to happen here at the center? In order for the blueprint to be followed out carefully, there's going to have to be some type of medical spin to this thing. When they walk by this place, they should see health somewhere. It will give us access to the people. The ability to sow beside how many waters? Oh, now watch this. Their hearts will be touched as you minister to their necessities. As you relieve their sufferings, you will find opportunity to speak to them of the love of Jesus. As you do what? Relieve their suffering. Watch this now. Watch this. Canvassers should be able to give instruction in regard to the treatment of the sick. They should learn the simple methods of hygienic treatment. Thus, they may work as medical missionaries, ministering to the souls and bodies of the suffering. This work should now be going forward. So we had these two quotes that appeared like they were contradicting. Canvassing work will go to the close of probation. Medical missionary work will be the only work that ministers will be able to do. But the canvasser and the medical missionary will blend into one. 
this is the only ministerial work that will go through to the close of probation. And remember, we're told to preach until there's nothing. Now, friends, we have a decision to make. Either we're going to come into line. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about everybody. God has a last day work that needs to be done. And all of God's children need to be involved in bringing these two works together. Without these two works, friends, I'll tell you the truth. Many of us who profess will not be in this last work. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What decision are you going to make tonight? Are you going to be one of God's last day workers? If so, my friends, we have a lot of work to do. And very little time to do it. We have no time to lose. The passage from place to place will soon be hedged in on the right hand and on the left. Everything will be placed to obstruct the way of the Lord's messengers so that they will not be able to do that which it is possible for them to do now. We must look our work fairly in the face and advance as fast as possible in aggressive warfare. You ever played that game, I Declare War? When you look at the houses and you see people, you should be thinking, spiritual war. How am I going to win souls for the master? As fast as possible. Notice what else it says. From the light given me of God, I know that the powers of darkness are working with intense energy from beneath and with stealthy tread. Satan is advancing to take those who are now asleep as a wolf taking his prey. We have warnings now which we, have, which we may give, a work now which we may do, but soon it will be more difficult than we can imagine. You're not hearing this, man. God help us to keep in the channel of light, to work with our eyes fastened on Jesus, our leader, and patiently, perseveringly press on to gain the victory. We have no time to lose. We must come from his presence with his glory, carrying the gospel. And that gospel has to be embodied in who we are and what we say. Not simply in theory, friends, but in practical living life. The gospel can be lived. It can be. No matter what any popular preacher says about their own sinful life, God can keep you from falling. He can. He spoke and the worlds came into existence. 
That same creative energy is in the Bible. And if we trust that creative energy, it will do for us what we can never, ever, 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 did I say ever? Ever do for ourselves. Do you believe the word of God? I mean, we covered a lot. I'm only here a couple of days. You may never, ever see me again after this weekend. But I, I, I know that we need to impress upon our minds the time in which we live, the importance of the work that we need to do, and what type of work we need to be focused on. If we're not doing it, friends, forget about it. We're just talking games, playing church. How many tonight will covenant with me to follow after God's blueprint? How many would do that? Rich, just raise your hand where you are. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you see us, your children, weak and unready. Father, we've seen just the tip of the iceberg of what is ahead, the work that needs to be done. And we just ask, Father, that you continue to teach us and inspire us to do that which is right and pleasing in your sight. We don't have time to lose, Lord. The passage from place to place will soon be hedged with dangers on the right hand and on the left. This country in a moment's time could have such a pestilence that they will say you can't travel anywhere. Lord, please, while there is still time, help us to do that which is important to do. And Father, even after the crisis does get hard, Help us to remain faithful until there is nothing left. And Father, help us to find our rest in you. Even when our friends begin to betray us. Even when those who have worked so closely with us begin to turn us in. Help us to love, Lord. You love Judas to the very end. You love Peter, even in the midst of his denial. Help us to love, Lord. Help us to see your face. To spend time in your presence. Thank you for being here. And strengthening even my weak self. We love you, Lord. Teach us to love you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen.